Our scripture reading today will come from two places. Uh, the first from the book of Genesis chapter 12, and then the book of Joshua chapter 24. You can find the scripture reading on the back of your outlines. I did make an adjustment there on Genesis 12. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Originally it was the first nine, but I decided to just do the first three. So Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, and then Joshua 24, the verses 1 through 13. Let us pay careful attention to the public reading of God's holy and infallible and inerrant word. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then from Joshua chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Hera, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau to the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron and plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. You lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gerbashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built. You dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchard that you did not plant. Thus the reading of God's word today. I encourage you to follow along on the outline and through the scriptures together. Well, congregation, as we begin this sermon series on the book of Judges, it's important that you understand the redemptive historical context of the book. And what do I mean by that? By the word redemptive, we mean that the Bible, from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, 
is about God's redeeming work for His people, saving them from their sins. And by the word historical, we mean that ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3, verse 15, God made a promise. And that promise is worked out throughout the Old Testament until the coming of Christ. God said to the serpent in Genesis 3, verse 15, I put that verse on your outlines today, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 3, 15, God told Satan, who was in the serpent, that the offspring of the woman would bruise his head. A head is a serious injury. And so that means the offspring of the woman will someday, as some translations put it, crush the serpent. And that is what will be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to earth again the second time. He will crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan. And yet the serpent will someday bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, Genesis 3.15 says. He won't crush the offspring of the woman, but he will bruise, as if some translations put it, strike the heel. That means he will hurt, he will injure the offspring of the woman, but he won't destroy her. And that means what is fulfilled with the offspring of the woman is that the Lord Jesus Christ would come to earth the first time and he would suffer and die on the cross to pay for the sins of his people and after three days rise from the dead. And so, in the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, all the way to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the biblical account of the history of God's promised redemption and salvation for His people. Now, on the back of your outlines this morning, I've put a chart that will help you see and understand this redemptive historical flow. I put it there at the top of your uh, back of your outlines. At the beginning of the chart, you see in the circle creation and that in the Garden of Eden, Adam was under a covenant of works. And after Adam ate of the tree and fell into sin in Genesis 3.15, God makes that promise that we just read from Genesis 3.15 about a covenant of grace, that he will someday bruise or crush the head of the serpent. But at this point in redemptive history, he doesn't reveal all the details. And so throughout the Old Testament history, God reveals more and more each stage about the coming of our Savior and God's saving grace. Throughout the covenant with Noah, you see it there after the fall, Noah, more of God's saving grace is revealed. God saves His people from the flood, and the next time He sends His judgment, it will be God's salvation through Christ Jesus from fire that will destroy the earth. Through the covenant with Abraham, more grace is revealed. God establishes a relationship with Abraham, promises him land and offspring where God will dwell with them in that Old Testament land. Through the covenant with Moses, more grace is revealed. The law and the sacrifices were revealed. The sacrifices showing God's grace for disobedience to His law. And through the covenant with David, even more grace is revealed. God will save His people once for all through His King. 
And so all the way from Genesis 3.15, more and more of God's redemptive grace is revealed in the Old Testament until it is fully revealed with the coming of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection on the cross, which will reveal God's complete plan of salvation through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see on the chart how I put kind of a, a funnel for you to see. That is because throughout the Old Testament redemptive history, more and more grace is being revealed. It's getting wider and wider until it comes to its fulfillment with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we begin this sermon series on the Old Testament book of Judges, it's important that you understand where the seventh book of the Bible, the book of Judges, fits in in that history of redemption. And so to understand how the book of Judges fits into the history of redemption, we have to start with God's covenant promises to Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. You see, after God confused the languages at the Tower of Babel, and the people were scattered all over the earth, God would call Abraham in Genesis 12 to leave behind his country, the place where he lived and he was from, to leave behind his kindred, that is, his people, their customs and their false religions, to leave behind, the verse says, his family, his father's household, his siblings, his parents, and everybody he was related to. And God puts before him then two promises that will come true in the Old Testament in part, but also serve as shadows of God's greater salvation to come. The first promise we read in Genesis 3, or I'm sorry, Genesis 12 verse 1 is the promise of the land. After God told Abram to leave his country, at the end of that verse, he promises that he will give to Abram the land that the Lord God will show him. And later, in Genesis 15, God shows him that land. He shows him the land of Canaan, which is a very real land upon the earth that God promises to him and his descendants. But the earthly land is not the only land that Abraham had in mind when God showed it to him in Genesis 15. Because God inspired the author of Hebrews, the New Testament book, to tell us what else Abraham was thinking as he looked over the land? I put it on your outlines this morning. Look how the author of Hebrews describes how in Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10, Abraham, by faith, was looking beyond the earthly land. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you see how Abram knew that the earthly land of promise that he surveyed, that he lived in as a sojourner, that God had put him there and that land was pointing to a greater land. The earthly land pointing to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's heaven. 
In other words, the author of Hebrews tells us that when God called him to leave the land and told him, I have a land for you, Abram, he wasn't just thinking of an earthly place. But as he looked at that land in faith, he saw the foreshadow of an eternal land of heaven that God has for his people. And that's why it did not matter to him that during his lifetime he did not inherit the earthly land. But he always lived as a sojourner, as a tent dweller, even in that land. And Abraham believed God's promise and saw the land as a shadow of the heavenly land where someday he would dwell with God forever. And so the second promise then that we see in Genesis 12 that God gives to Abram is found in verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. As I said at the beginning of this sermon, this promise goes all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. In Genesis 3, 15, God made the promise that the offspring of the woman would someday crush the head of the serpent. And here in Genesis 12, we read that God will carry on the promised offspring through Abram. But think about where Abram was in life when God made this promise in Genesis 12. God says, I will make you a great nation, but his wife Sarah is barren. Abram will spend almost 100 years of his life with his wife Sarah, barren, until far after she's past the age of childbearing, God blesses them with a child. God supernaturally bringing that old dead womb to life, blessing Abraham with the promised offspring child. In Genesis 12, Abram is told that he will be a great nation, and he will not see the great nation that God promised during his lifetime. But he still believed that God's promise would come true. For through his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, he would have as his descendants 12 sons. And in the land of Egypt, God would raise up a nation of 12 tribes from those 12 sons that would be God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel. And God would give them the land of Canaan, and then the tabernacle, and later the temple, so that God would dwell with his people in the land. And yet, Galatians 3, verses 28 to 29 tells us that that Old Testament land, those Old Testament people, that was pointing, foreshadowing something yet still to come. For God inspired the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29 to describe and expand the offspring of the woman and Abraham from beyond the Old Testament people to the Jews. I put it on your outline this morning. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Look again at that last verse, last part of verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. God inspired the Apostle Paul to tell us that the promise to Abram, Abraham, has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are an heir to the promise of Abraham. That's what Paul 
interprets and tells us from the Old Testament. The great nation that was promised to Abram in Genesis 12 is beyond his son Isaac. It's beyond even the Old Testament people of God. That's what Galatians chapter 3 tells us. And that's why at the end of Genesis 12 verse 3 we read, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see how the Apostle Paul knew how to understand this and interpret this? It even is referring to this in Genesis 12, verse 3. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth, Jew and Gentile families, shall be blessed. God's promise of salvation was not just for the Jews, the descendants of Abraham. God inspired the Apostle Paul to tell us that the Old Testament people of God were mostly Jews, the nation of Israel, but now with the coming of Christ Jesus and the salvation He accomplished for His people on the cross, whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are the offspring of Abram, the heirs of the promise, the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve. And during the New Testament era, after the coming of the Lord Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ is now the people of God. They are the great nation that God promised to Abram. And that brings us this morning then to Joshua chapter 24. The context of the book of Judges. This is Joshua 24. is the last chapter of the book that comes before the book of Judges in the Scriptures. In this chapter, Joshua is reminding God's people of all that has taken place thus far in God's redemptive historical Old Testament plan. Remember, God called Abram at about 2000 B.C. And what takes place here in Joshua 24 that we're going to read through again in a moment is about 600 years later. 1400 B.C. is the estimated time. And look how God inspired Joshua to remind them at this time where in redemptive history they are at how God has fulfilled His Old Testament promises He made to Abraham in 2000 B.C. First, in Joshua 24, verses 1 through 4, God reminds them how God called the patriarchs to be sojourners. Joshua 24, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And it was in Egypt that Jacob's children became 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he goes on to describe them, Joshua does, in verses 5 and 6. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, 
He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. So he's reminded them of the promise to Abraham. He's reminded them, again, how God delivered them from Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them through the wilderness, and then he finally describes what just took place or what is taking place in the book of Joshua. Verse 8, Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. And I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards that you did not plant. You see in these verses how God is describing how he has fulfilled those promises in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. God promised Abram in Genesis 12 that his descendants would be a great nation and take possession of the land of Canaan. And now under the leadership of Joshua, God repeats it over and over again. I delivered you out of their hands. I gave you a land which you had not labored, cities you didn't build, you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards, the olive orchards you didn't plant. They have now been brought into the land. The descendants of Abram, they have conquered the land under Joshua, and they've been blessed. And that brings us then to the book of Judges. 600 years of promises now have been fulfilled just as God had promised Abram. And in the book of Judges, we then see the next step, the next phase in the redemptive historical plan of God. The book of Judges, seventh book of the Bible, covers the time period between Joshua, who led them into the land and helped them conquer the land, and the king. 350 years. The book of Judges is about what takes place in that 350-year time period between when the land was conquered under Joshua and the time before the Israelites had their first king. The first verse of the book of Judges, Judges 1 verse 1, I put it on your outline, reads this way. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Joshua, we're told in the first part of that verse, is now dead. The conquest era, the 
conquest era, of the conquering of the land, that's now over. And the people inquired of the Lord then, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The people are looking for a leader. And at the end of the book, the last verse of the book of Judges, Judges 21 verse 25, again I put it on your outlines, it reads this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Do you see what has yet to be revealed when it comes to God's redemptive plan of salvation? The main question that people are asking in the book of Judges is, who will lead us? God had Moses lead them through the wilderness. He's no longer here. God had Joshua lead us to conquer the land. He's no longer here. And so now that we're in the land, the land of promise, who will lead us? And in the book of Judges, when they see how, when you see how each judge falls short, at the end of the book, the people of God have learned how much they need a king. A king like King David, a man after God's own heart, to lead them. A king that will point to a greater king that God will send to lead and to save them. You remember that redemptive historical chart I directed you to at the beginning of this sermon on the back of your outlines. God revealed to Abram more about his redemptive plan when he promised him the land and that he would make Abram a great nation of descendants. And more of God's redemptive plan was revealed under Moses when he delivered them from Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. And he gave them his law, including the tabernacle and the animal sacrifices, so they could approach a holy God and need a greater Passover lamb to come to save them. And now in the book of Judges, when there is no king, because Joshua has died to lead them, the book will point us to something more about how God's salvation from sin is to come. God will save His people through His King that will someday come. The first book of the New, I'm sorry, the first verse of the New Testament from the first book, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, tells us this is the account of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. And so as we look at each judge, you will see how although God used the judges to do at times great things to save God's people, and how by what they did in those great things, at times they pointed and showed us a picture, a small picture of the salvation that would someday come through Christ Jesus and what Christ would someday do. So that many of those judges' names are even found in the halls of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The book of Judges will show us how yet, no matter what and how wonderful things they did, they are still sinners and they fall short of the King of Kings that would someday come to save His people, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the offspring of the woman of Genesis 3.15. And they show us and point us to the need for that king to come and to be the one who can save God's people from their sins. And so do you see why it is so important that as we start out this sermon series on the book of Judges this morning, that this first sermon sets the setting for the redemptive historical place of the book of Judges in the Scriptures. Because if you don't have that approach in mind, when you read the book of Judges, you're left thinking this book is not about us today. You're left thinking about, well, this is God's people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. They lived in an ancient age of idolatry and false worship. It doesn't have anything to do with us. It's about them. And then you're left with, if that's how you look at it, to interpret the book as if you're reading Judges, trying to find some sort of moral principle in it. I'll tell you a few that I've heard. Deborah, a woman judge, she led Israel. So the Bible tells us that women can be pastors. I've heard that argument made many times. Samson, he was a drunk. He pursued Canaanite women who worshipped other gods. Don't be like Samson. I've heard that interpreted that way. And so as we begin this journey through the book of Judges together, it's important that you think redemptive historically. It's important that you read the text and interpret it vertically, not horizontally, vertically, that you see how God is interceding in the lives of His people as He's interceded in your life. And that means then that what takes place in the book of Judges is not about just something that happened to God's people back then, but the book of Judges is how God is at work saving His people through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, even today. And how so? First, let's look at that promise again of the land given to Abram. Keep in mind, the Old Testament promise of the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan, is not the same as the nation of Israel today who lives in that same part of the world. That's not the same land. That's not the same point. The Old Testament land of Canaan is not the United States of America. Because people do not understand the redemptive historical context, people tend to read the book of Judges that way. I've heard them. I've read them. But in the Old Testament Judges era, God has blessed His people with a tabernacle that had a holy of holies where He dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant and a holy place because God was going to dwell with His people in the land of promise. And with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His salvation work that He accomplished on the cross, there's no longer a need for a tabernacle or a temple because God dwells with His people now in His church. 
And the church now that gathers for worship on the Lord's day is the New Testament land on earth that foreshadows the city without foundations that God promised to Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11. The city whose designer and builder is God, the eternal land of heaven. When Abram looked at the land of Canaan, Hebrews 11 tells us that's what he saw beyond the earthly land. And it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament in the land of Canaan. In the New Testament, it is the church of Jesus Christ where God dwells with his people. And it points to an eternal dwelling in heaven. In the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God that is there forever. Vertical, you see. A second thing to keep in mind is the nation of God's people who is that in the New Testament? The nation of God's people is not the nation of Israel today or the future nation of Israel someday during a millennium. The nation of God's people is not the people of the United States because some people do not look at this book redemptive historically. People tend to read the book of Judges that way. But the Apostle Paul has told us in Galatians 3 that God's people today are all those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and He has forgiven their sins. And so the people of God today are those who belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you see and understand those things, you will then see how the book of Judges speaks to the church today. Because do you know what the biggest problem was for God's people in the book of Judges? It is the same biggest problem for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. The biggest problem in the book of Judges is that even though God had saved His people, as Joshua described in Joshua 24, by bringing them out of the land of slavery by the blood of the Passover lamb, just as He has saved His church by the blood of the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, saving His people from their slavery to sin. That even though He had them baptized in the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that, and as members of His church have been baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ today, and just as he brought them into the land where they could focus on God and worship Him, just like you, God's people, were brought into the church so that you could focus on God and worship Him. After all of that salvation work, at the beginning of the book, God's people look around at the Canaanite people around them and how they live. And instead of being different and living their lives according to God's law and truth and worshiping Him, they see how the Canaanites live and they compromise and soon start living their lives like the Canaanites to the point where at the end of the book, there's no difference in how they live. And throughout those 350 years of the time of the judges, that compromise leads them on a downward spiral of sin. The first judge in the book of Judges is a pretty good judge. By the time you get to the last judge, Samson, not a morally right and just judge. Even the judges themselves 
show this downward spiral of sin to the point where at the end of the book, God's people are fighting each other. And the last verse of the book summarizes it all. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They don't follow God's word. They don't look to God's word and God's truth and to the salvation plan of God. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, does that sound like the church today? Are the members of God's church today trying to be different? To live according to God's law and truth? Or do they compromise and live like the non-Christians around them? As you look at it, would you say the churches in our nation are united and strong in the Lord? Or are they fighting each other? Think of how much COVID divided the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've spent so much time talking to pastors the last two years that have tried to help and work through that problem. Some guys retired. It's true. They couldn't handle it. And what has happened to all those churchgoers who after all that division and struggle quit going? And haven't come back. Are we starting to live in a day when everyone does what is right in their own eyes? Instead of living according to God's truth? What did Genesis 3.15 say? I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And in the book of Judges, by the end of the book, there stopped being enmity. God sent judge after judge to fight off those enemies time after time, and it stirred up enmity. But the people didn't want it. And sometimes, sadly, it seems... There's so much of that today in the church. And yet, God sent his king. God, at the end of the book of Judges, transitions to the time of the king. You have a king. You have a king that's already come. You have a king who was the fruit of the promise of Genesis 3.15, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, the king of kings who has already come and has already accomplished salvation, and the faithful king that just like the psalm said this morning, Psalm 112, will lead you and has led you in righteousness and truth and salvation. And it's my prayer that as we go through the book of Judges in the coming months, the book of Judges will help you to look to and to follow the King of Kings that God has sent, who will lead you to the promised land, salvation and eternal life with Him in heaven 
forevermore. Amen. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you today for the scriptures, for redemptive history. For Lord, as we look through the scriptures and we see your promises and how they were fulfilled, Lord, even in the Old Testament, we see the greater fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. We see our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings who has come. Father, we're thankful that as members of your church, we can come and worship you in the land, a land, a place where we worship that points to you and salvation and eternal worship that someday all your people will do, Jew and Gentile, in heaven. We're thankful, Lord, that we can gather as your people and see around us fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from all different backgrounds and races. And Lord, in that, find unity in Christ Jesus and a foundation and strength in Him. And yet, Lord, as we go to your word in the Old Testament, we're reminded of how quickly your people, though you had saved them, though you had brought them into a relationship with you and a place of worship where that you would dwell with them, began to look around them. They began to live like the people around them and to worship and follow other gods. Father, we're thankful that our Savior has accomplished salvation for us. We're thankful for His righteousness, that He is the King eternal. Lord, we pray that you would help us as your people to keep our eyes, our focus on Him and not the things of this world. Father, we pray for your church, both our congregation, the congregations in our nation and all over the world. That You would bring your people to a unity that can only come by their love, their knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His wonderful grace and eternal life that He came to bring. We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.